I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members, uh-oh, one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being one body in Christ are individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would speak to us now as we look into it, that you'd continue to give us insight and understanding, just as we even see in this passage that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we in our daily lives, wherever we go throughout this week, to work, to school, as many people are getting ready to start school again, just out in the community, in our neighborhood, Lord, we pray that we would be able to display, to prove what is your good and perfect and acceptable will. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed, saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> what is the point of salvation? What is the objective in the Christian life? We have now spent nearly 10 months going through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, looking at the core of the doctrine of salvation in that section of scripture, but what is the purpose of this faith? Romans chapter 10 describes us, the Christian, as being saved. You believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. You confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You are saved. But what are we saved from? What are we saved to? Of course, we know there are answers to those questions. We're saved from death because of sin. We're saved from hell. We're saved to eternal life with God in his presence. The Bible describes that in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand pleasures forevermore. So salvation encompasses that being saved from death and health, being saved to eternal life. But if that's all that salvation is, then it would seem not a bad thing if God didn't just immediately translate us to heaven in his presence upon conversion. I mean, that would seem like a, a very compelling reason to believe. If immediately believing in Christ meant that you were taken from this life to be with the Lord in eternity, I mean, how many wouldn't vote yes on that one? A lot of us would say, yeah, that sounds like a pretty sweet gig if that was it. But the fact that here we are gathered, Christians, most of us, maybe there are some who are not, but most of us gathered here today believe that Jesus died and rose again. We've confessed him as Lord and Savior, and yet we're not in heaven at this present moment. We're gathered together. I'm sure this is second best to heaven, but we're not there yet. So if salvation is more than not being those that will go to hell, being those that will go to heaven, what exactly is it? What is the objective of the Christian life? I suggest to you that at 
least in some way, the point of salvation and the Christian experience of life that follows the salvation experience is the becoming, here in this life, the becoming more of what we were created to be in the first place. It's God's aim in salvation to bring us into, here in this life now, not just heaven in the future, but to bring us into the experience of what it was God intended when he created humanity. Now, of course, Genesis chapter three, the book of the, the Bible that starts with the book of Genesis, the creation account in chapters one and two, but then the fall in chapter three. And chapter three reveals to us that what God had intended to be for his creation, for humanity, which we are created to be the image bearers of God, what he had intended for us is disrupted by sin. And through sin comes death. And death is separation. And so as a result of sin, as a result of death, the community that God had intended for humanity to experience, the connectedness that he wanted for us to have, it's disrupted, it's destroyed even. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that God had commanded them that they not eat, when sin entered in, their eyes were opened, the Bible says in Genesis chapter three, and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And therein is a disruption in this community, this fabric of community that God had created, that he had intended. Not only was there a separation between humanity there in between them, but there was also a separation between man and God, and God had created man to be in communion with him. And we know that separation came in because there God enters the scene again in Genesis chapter three, and his words are very clear. Adam, where are you? There was a separation. So in the fall comes the disruption, it comes the destruction really of what God had intended for humanity. Community with one another and communion with God. And I would submit to you that the gospel restores it. That's the objective of the gospel. Yes, we're saved from hell, which is the result of sin. We're saved to be with God in eternity, but we're not there yet. What about right now? Jesus came, he tells us in John chapter 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So his purpose in his coming and his purpose in salvation is not just salvation from hell and salvation unto eternal life in heaven. It is salvation now. It is the experiencing of the abundant life. Now, theologically speaking, doctrinally speaking, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans lay that out for us. It explains the truth of this. It explains that this is reality in God's economy. It shows us what the doctrine of salvation is throughout those chapters. But that doctrine, that truth needs to accord with the reality of our lives. It needs to become something that's very tangible to us, where it's not just something we know, but it's something we experience. So whereas the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are largely what we would call orthodoxy, it's, it's filled with theology and doctrine, when we come into chapter 12, there is a very clear turn coming into this section, chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, where Paul moves from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, where the knowledge of what we know about salvation becomes real in our lives. And so all that we know from what we've been taught in those previous 11 chapters are now applied in the next 70 or so verses, and that's really what we're gonna see. It's just about 70 verses. 
God created humanity to experience communion with him and community with one another, and sin has devastated that. It's disrupted that. But in Christ and through the gospel, we can experience the restoration of that. However, there is a problem. There's always a problem, isn't there? The problem is, and we all recognize this very, very clearly, we still live in a fallen world. And we still live in fallen bodies. How many can identify with that reality? Every single morning, there's a recognition these things are fallen. It blows my mind when I get out of bed and all the cracking that goes on all the way down my stairs. It's like, man, this thing is fallen. And I'm only 33 and I feel it. So I, I know some of you are in here going, yeah, just wait. Boy, do I know. But we live in a fallen world because of sin. We live in fallen bodies because of sin. And therefore, there are very many things that are seeking to pull us away from what God intends. God desires, it is his aim, that he wants us to experience this abundant life. Jesus said, I am come so that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He wants us to experience that. But this world and these fallen bodies are warring against us coming into the experience of what God is desiring for us. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, for the flesh, that's speaking of this fallen body, the flesh wars against the spirit, the work of God's spirit in our lives, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, we already saw that in Romans chapter 7, very clearly. We've already considered the fact of these things, the truth of it. But if it's God's aim for you and I as Christians to experience that abundant life. And what we already studied in Romans chapter 11 where Paul says that he wanted to provoke to jealousy those from his own family, his own people, the Jewish people. He wanted to provoke them to jealousy through the gospel. This is part of that. You see, you and I experiencing community with one another in Christ and communion with God, it should be the very thing that causes people to be jealous for what we have. Because all of humanity is ultimately, although they may not verbalize it, although they may not be able to articulate it, they at the deepest level are seeking for restored communion with their Father God. They're seeking for restored community with one another. And we live in a world that is so focused on trying to establish community but doesn't even know how to do it. We live right here in North County in the city of Escondido where they're constantly talking in the city council and in different meetings about how do we promote a sense of community in our community. We don't even know how to do that as just fallen individuals, but they're looking for it. We want it, and it's truly found in Christ. And so when we come into Romans chapter 12, we're going to see in about 70 verses, there's more than 40 exhortations that Paul is going to give. These are him calling us to be different, to live different. And the exhortations of Romans chapters 12 through 15 are aimed at bringing us into the experience of the abundant life. We know about it theologically, but it's theory when you end Romans chapter 11. It's not practical when you end Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 12 begins the part where Paul says, all right, let's apply this. Let's make this a reality. Let's make it true. My wife's a nurse, many of you know that. When she started nursing school, if any of you are nurses in here or have gone in the medical profession, you know that this is true. When you start in nursing school, it's about 80% theory and about 20% practical 
exercise. And as time goes on, those balances of uh, the percentages change to the end when you're coming to your graduation point. It's about 80% practical and about 20% theory. There's a change that goes on during that course. And that's really with any sort of training in our lives. We get the theory, we get the understanding of why we do the things we do first and then we apply those things. And that's exactly what's happening here in this passage is that Paul is moving from theory to practice. Saying this needs to become a real part of our lives. We may know it as Christians, and what we have in the American church today is a lot of Christians who know a lot of things about the Christian life but aren't actually existing in the expression of the abundant life. And I would suggest that it's one of the reasons why a lot of people are leaving the church because they say, well, we just, we're not experiencing what the Bible says we should experience. There's a reason for that. And we're going to see it in this text. These 70 verses are the application of the salvation that we've already seen spoken of in chapters 1 through 11. What we're exhorted to do here in this passage is antithetical, it's opposite, it's contrary to what our flesh desires. It's against what we default to. It's telling us to do otherwise, which is not easy. Because it's easy just to sit back and kind of go with the flow. How many of you know that? It's hard to be healthy. It's hard to be strong athletically. You actually have to work at that. It just doesn't happen, right? How many of us wish it just happened? That would be great. Doesn't. This flesh that we have is working against that work that God wants to do, the world in which we live, the world is subjugated by Satan. It's under his rule. John tells us, the apostle John in 1 John chapter 5, he says, all the world is under the sway of the wicked one. And so it is geared, it's oriented to try and get you to go with its flow. And Paul here is exhorting us to move in a different direction. The world wants us to be brought into conformity with its mold what it has for us. And Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, is saying God wants to bring about a total transformation. He wants to bring us into the experience of the abundant life. God has already given us a new heart. You remember when Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, that religious man came to Jesus and he's speaking with him and Jesus says, you, you must be born again. And so he explains this concept Jesus does about us being born again by the Spirit of God, God doing this work in our lives, which is the salvation experience. And when we're born again, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that we receive a new heart and we receive God's abiding Spirit within us. So we have the Spirit of God in us. We have this new heart that God has given to us. And his Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. We saw that in Romans chapter 8. And if we are his children, then he's given us an inheritance and part of that inheritance, Paul, Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1 where he says that we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Here and now, we have in our possession every spiritual blessing of God. Why? So that we can experience today the abundant life. So, with these things, the new heart the abiding presence of God's spirit, the gifts that he has given to us, we now need to work out our salvation. 
We know what it means to be saved. That's what the doctrine is given to us there in Romans chapters 1 through 11. But now we need to work it out. It's a work that God has done to bring us into this experience. And now we need to experience it. We need to walk in it. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The question is, how do we do that? And I would say that what we're going to see in this section of Romans is leading us into the understanding of how how we do it. And so Paul begins, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. How do we work out our salvation? Number one, if you're taking notes, write down the word submission. Submission. Verse 1 gives us an understanding of this idea of submission, but notice there in verse 1 the word therefore. I beseech you, therefore. You might want to highlight it in your Bibles. It's important because that word therefore points back to everything else that Paul has already said previous to this. From Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to the end of Romans chapter 11, everything that Paul has said, he now says, in light of all that, because of all that, what is our response How do we now live knowing all that we know? And he says, here's what we do. I urge you, I beseech, I pray of you, I beg you that you, because of everything that has already been done, brethren, he's speaking to the church, that you, by the mercies of God, that is, by God's enabling power, he knows that you and I, we are dust. We are utterly unable in our own strength to make these things happen. We could not save ourselves. We cannot now sanctify ourselves. God gives us enabling power to do it. So by the mercies of God that you would present, that is submit, yield, that you would submit your bodies, that is this fallen carnal flesh that desires to go towards the things of this world. He says, yield that. Submit it. Submit it to what? That you would yield these bodies as a living sacrifice. Although you're still alive, you've sacrificially offered yourself to the Lord. Acceptable, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And those words reasonable service are translated in another English Bible as your only right response. Another way is your reasonable act of worship. Because of everything that God has already done for us in response to that, Paul says we should offer ourselves, we should yield and submit ourselves unto God, alive to him, dead to the impulses, desires, and urges of this carnal flesh. We're going to die to that and we're going to submit ourselves to him because it's the only right response because of everything he's done for us. So the only logical thing for us to do is to yield ourselves to him. Now, notice he says here, to be holy and acceptable to God. Now, the doctrine of salvation that we've seen, especially in Romans chapters 1 and 2 and 3, makes it very, very clear that none of us are acceptable to God. There is none who seeks after God, no, not one. We have all become an unworthless, or we have all become a worthless thing. Chapter 3 of Romans makes it very clear that, that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
There's nothing in us that makes us worthy for salvation. Salvation came to us not because of our worthiness, but salvation came to us because God so what the world? He loved the world. He loved us. And we have received his love, and as the recipients of his love, we've received his grace. And so he says here that we are to be offered to him as holy, blameless, and acceptable. But there's nothing intrinsically about us that makes us holy. So we have a hard time with this word. There's almost a way in which our minds kind of trip over the word holy because we have certain thoughts about this idea of holiness. The, the word holy, translated here, is the Greek word hagios. It's translated 161 times in the New Testament as holy. It's translated 61 times as saints. And you see, we already have, because of certain backgrounds or upbringings or religious connections, we already have an idea about holiness and saintliness. And we have this construct in our minds that says, if we want to be saints, then we need to live a, a, a saintly way through our entire lives. And then at the end of our lives, after we die, there's going to be a council that gets together and they will come and they will conclude whether or not we're saintly. Should we canonize them? Should we say, they're a saint? And so we think that you have to live a saintly life to be declared a saint. We think that you have to live a holy life to be called holy. But what the Bible reveals is that God, based on the work that Christ has done for us on the cross, he declares us holy. He calls us saints. So as those who are holy, as those who are saints, Paul's exhortation here is now that we would live holy lives. We would live as what we are. We are saints, so we need to live in that. And the first step in moving into that is submission. Submission. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present or submit your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your only right response. Number two, we move from submission to renunciation. Renunciation. Look at verse two. And do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he tells us that we as Christians should not love the world. We shouldn't love the world. Why? Because if we love the world, we love something that John tells us is going to lead us away from the experience of the abundant life. Because he says, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these things are not of God. So he says, if you love the world, you love those things that are not of God. And then he tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, this world is passing away. So if you love the world, you love something that ultimately is going to burn. It's all going to burn anyways. All the great, amazing things of this world will be consumed. The Apostle Peter tells us that at the end of his letters. He says, this thing's going to burn with a fervent heat. It's going to melt away. And so the world is passing away, and the desire for it will pass away with it. So the Apostle John says, don't be wholly engaged in this world, because if your total investment of your energy, of your mind, of your time is in this world, you're invested in something that is going to fail. And it's foolishness. It's folly. If you had an advanced 
copy of what was going to happen with the whole Enron situation. Someone came to you and said, listen, we want you to invest in Enron. Yeah, we recognize there's some problems, and yes, it is going to fail, but you're going to make a whole bunch of money in the middle of it. You'll have a whole bunch of pleasure in the middle of it. You would not invest in something you knew that was absolutely going to fail. It'd be foolishness. And so John says, this world will fail. It's going to burn. So if your investment is here, you're investing in the wrong place. So when Paul says here in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, he is saying that we need, as Christians, we ought to renounce or abandon or relinquish all claim upon this world. If we're to experience the abundant life, we need to submit ourselves to God and we need to renounce any claim upon this world because it will fade away. If we allow ourselves to be conformed into the mold of this world, we will be led away from this abundant life. The whole pattern, the whole flow of this world is under the sway of the wicked one. And if we conform to what this world wants, And this world is always telling us that this is where it's at. But if we allow ourselves to be conformed to this, we will be pulled away with its current. And if we are to experience this true abundant life, then we need to submit ourselves to God. Second, we need to relinquish all right to this world, claim upon it. Thirdly, transformation. Submission, verse 1. Renunciation, the first part of verse 2. Transformation. The second part of verse 2, where do we see that? And be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we want to experience the abundant life that Jesus has for us, because salvation is more than being saved from hell and saved unto eternal life with him. Salvation is right now experiencing the abundant life that God intended for his creation when he said, let there be light. If we're to experience that, then we need to offer ourselves to God submissively. God, we're yours, we're not ours. We are wholly dedicated and consecrated to you. We relinquish all right to this world, and then we are to be transformed. And this transformation begins in the mind. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul, in another one of his letters, he tells us to be carnally minded is death. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. It's, it goes against, it's contrary to what God desires. And God's aim and desire is to bring us into the experience of this abundant life, to experience what many Old Testament sages would refer to as shalom, peace. God wants to bring us into this, but the carnal mind, that is our old mind that's still affected and infected by the realities of the fallenness of this world, it is set against God. So Paul says that mind needs to be renewed. Well, how does that happen? Well, God in salvation gives us a new heart. He gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit, and now there's something that needs to take place from the heart that affects the mind. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I would suggest to you that this transformation takes place from the logos of God. You may say, what exactly is that? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, in the beginning was the word. The word is, the Greek word is the word logos. 
In the beginning was the logos, the word. And then in verse 14 of John chapter one, it says the logos, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, Jesus is the logos of God and he transforms our minds. One of the ways that he does this is through his word that he's revealed to us. So God uses his word to transform our minds, but God's indwelling presence in our heart, he desires to transform our thinking. He wants our entire thinking to be transformed. The word transformation here is the Greek word metamorpho. We get our English word metamorphosis from it. It's a complete change of form in every way. And so this transformation, Paul says, it begins in the mind, be transformed in the renewing of your mind, but it moves from the mind out into our lives. How so? Look at what he says. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Submit yourselves to God. Relinquish all claim to this world because it's passing away. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may show forth in your lives that you may display what is that good and acceptable and perfect will. People ask all the time, what is the will of God for my life? Now, there are explicit statements in the New Testament about this is the will of God for you. 1 Thessalonians 5 comes to mind about that. This is the will of God for you. There are those explicit statements, but we oftentimes want a more full answer. What's God's will for my life uniquely, individually? If you want an idea, idea of what God's will looks like, then you will see it displayed in the life of an individual who is endeavoring by God's grace to live those things out that are good and acceptable to him. You will see what God's will is when you see it in the life of a person who is endeavoring to live out what is good and acceptable to him. As their minds have been renewed by his spirit, by his grace, by his word, as God's word begins to so affect the way that we think, that carnal mind is done away with, and now we begin to act according to that mind. You may prove what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Paul continues, verse three, for I say through the grace that is given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to everyone a measure of faith. One of the very clear truths that we receive in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is that there was nothing that you and I could do to make ourselves holy and acceptable to God. There was no way in and of our own strength that we could make ourselves righteous. God won our righteousness for us. We're clothed in his righteousness by grace through faith. There was nothing that we could do to make ourselves holy and acceptable to him outside of his grace given to us. And Paul reminds us here in this section of scripture that everything that we are has to do with his grace. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but soberly. You see, this is an important exhortation because all of us are affected by our sin nature. And because of sin residing within us, we look around the church and we say, you know, we're obviously a pretty special people. We're saved. We're the people of God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says we are his own special people. And then we can look at people who are not a part of the body of Christ and we can think, well, something's wrong with them. 
I don't know what it is, but something's clearly wrong with them. Us, however, we're the special ones. We like to be special, don't we? We do. And what Paul says here is, listen, there is nothing intrinsically in you, in me, that made us so wonderfully special to God that he said, I have to have that one and not the other. If there's anything special in us, it's him. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's the treasure? God. And, and what's the earthen vessel? Us, broken, tattered earthen vessels. And so Paul says, you should not think arrogantly more highly of yourself than you ought to, but soberly. Think clearly. Why? Because God has given to every one of us a measure of faith. All cre- he, he has given to humanity this measure of faith, this seed of faith. We say, well, then how is it that I'm more special than they, that I, I received it? Well, no. God's word affected your heart. It touched that seed of faith and grew into saving faith by his grace. Have we been saved? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not anything that we have done for ourselves. And so Paul wants us to be reminded that we are all here because of his grace. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. God has made us what we are today, the people of God, by his grace. Now, if we stay the same and we never enter into the experience of his abundant life, then his grace towards us might be said to be in vain. And Paul says, but I labored. I I wanted to labor to enter into that experience of rest. I wanted to labor to enter into that experience of the abundant life and remember the exhortations of this section of Scripture that we're going to be getting into next week. These are leading us into experiencing this thing. And you need to recognize the exhortations we're going to see in this section of Scripture are things that we don't want to do. Let me give you an example. Submit yourself to the governing authorities over you. Pay your taxes to them. How many of you are like, yes, I like that abundant life. (laughs) Your flesh, my flesh, doesn't want to do that, especially if the other guy got elected. Right? It's antithetical to our flesh. And Paul says, this is the way to the abundant life. This is it. So salvation and the resulting sanctification that takes place, the transformation in us, it is all of God's grace according to faith. Therefore, we cannot think highly of ourselves as if we brought this upon ourselves. We ought to think soberly, recognizing that all that we have that is good and all that we will ever do that is good is according to God's grace. How so? Look at verse four of Romans chapter 12. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If ministry, let us use it in our ministering to he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with Cheerfulness. So Paul's exhortation is this. If you want to experience the abundant life, number one, you need to submit yourself wholly and completely to God, consecrated to him. 
Second, you need to relinquish all right to any claim upon this earth which is passing away. Third, you need to allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of his grace, by the renewing of your mind. And then you need to engage in the work that he's gifted you to do. If you want to experience the abundant life of Christ, you need to use the gifts that he's given to every single one of us for his glory in your workplace, in your community, at your church, wherever you are. If all you're doing to experience the abundant life is just coming to church on Sunday, you'll never experience it. The only way to experience this abundance in life that Jesus promised is to engage in his work by the gifts of his grace that he's given to you. And so now in this section of scripture, Paul reminds us that we collectively are one body in Christ. And just as these human bodies we have have many different members and all the different pieces and organs don't function identically, they don't all do the same thing, but they work together for the health of the body. He says, as members of the body of Christ, using the gifts that you have, you're to function in the place that God has placed you to bring health to the body. And yet the problem is a lot of times in the church and in the body of Christ, there's a whole bunch of free radicals. How many of you would confess you might be a free radical? <laughs> Trying to do our own thing in our own way by our own strength. And God says, no, I want to use you in the function that I've placed you in with the gifts that I've given to you. And Paul lists seven of them here. There's seven spiritual gifts that Paul mentions. It's not a comprehensive listing, nor is our study on this passage going to be comprehensive. If you want a really deep, long teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, you can go on our website, ccsgo.com, and I have a 17-week series, some of you were here for it, 17 weeks that we did in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And you can delve into the gifts of the Spirit, but here Paul mentions seven of them. And we need to recognize that a spiritual gift, Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, Ephesians chapter 4 says he gave gifts to men, so he gave gifts to his church. A spiritual gift is a God-given capacity through which God's Holy Spirit supernaturally ministers to the body. It is an ability that the Spirit of God gives you to express your faith in order to strengthen another person's faith. So the gifts of the Spirit are for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. So whatever gifts God has given to us, it's so that we might encourage and build up one another. And Paul lists seven, prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. Prophecy, I know a lot of times you hear the word prophecy, you go, oh yeah, foretelling the future. You know, we have a spiritual gifts test on our website to help people kind of figure out what their spiritual gifts are. And I've had like at least a half dozen people come to me after taking that and say, I'm a prophet. The test told me so. It's a scary thing when you hear that. The problem is sometimes you meet people who say, I'm a prophet, and they speak like, thus saith the Lord. Everything's in King James English. You go, wait, I'm not sure you quite understand this whole thing. Yes, there is a component in prophecy where you're foretelling what's coming in the future, but that's a very small component of it. Much of prophecy is foretelling the word of God in an applicable way to God's people. And so there are some people who are gifted to speak prophetically from God's word. Then there's this idea of ministry. While every single person who's a disciple of Christ is called to be a servant because the word ministry here is actually the Greek word diakonos, which means deacon, a servant. We're all called to serve in some capacity. There are some people who have the ability to identify 
and care for the physical needs of the body of Christ in a special way. They're uniquely gifted by God in the area of ministry. Then there's teaching. There are people within the body of Christ, although every single one of us at some stage in our Christian life will stand as a teacher to someone who doesn't know things about God. Maybe it's just teaching them how to pray. Maybe it's just teaching them how to live patiently through a difficult trial. Whatever it is, we all stand in the position as teachers at some point, but there are people within the body of Christ that have the ability to clearly explain and articulate God's word in such a way to bring application to the body of Christ. They're gifted as teachers by God. The gift of exhortation, the word exhort, is the Greek word parakaleo. It means to come alongside with, parakaleo, and call. So it's with a call. It's the idea of a coach or a personal trainer who comes on and says, come on, you can do it. Let's go. Let's keep running the race, even when it's hard. There are people in the body of Christ who are gifted with the gift of exhortation by the Spirit of God. Then there's the gift of leadership. There are some people within the body of Christ that have the ability to discern God's purpose for a group of people and to set goals and a path and move forward in that. The gift of mercy You may say, well, I don't have the gift of mercy. I don't have to be merciful to people. No, wrong. (laughs) We're all called to be merciful to people because our God in heaven is merciful, and so we, in exhibiting his nature, are merciful to people. We don't give them what they deserve, even though they might deserve a punch in the face. We're going to see that in this section of Scripture. Paul says there, later on in chapter 14, I believe it is, don't render evil for evil. It's the same thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn them to the other also. Our flesh doesn't want to do that, but to experience the abundant life, Paul says, that's what we have to do. But there are people that are gifted with this gift of God's grace for mercy, the ability to deeply empathize or engage compassionately on behalf of someone else in the body of Christ. Yes, I know some of you that are watching, I skipped over giving, I did it purposefully. Because I'm going to finish with that one. And there's a reason. You see, everybody within the body of Christ is called to give, to support the work of God. Paul says, he who has the gift of giving should give liberally. So there are people that are uniquely gifted by God to give in a very abundant way. And so you may say, well, I don't have a lot to give. God doesn't say, well, that means you're excluded from giving. No, we all are called upon to give of our time, of our talents, of our treasures, our resources, what we have. And you know what? The body of Christ, this church here at Cross Connection, we exist and do the work that God has called us to based on the giving of this body. And I've shared with you before, and I don't like to share it very often, but this year I've already had to share it once. I need to share it again, that as we stand here at the end of the summer 2013, we're in a place where we need this church to prayerfully consider to give more. If you're not giving, I'd encourage you to pray about giving financially to the work of the church. If you are giving, I'd ask you just to pray and ask the Lord, how would you like me to move forward? You see, it's an interesting thing that happened. I don't really fully understand it, but at the end of last year, I shared with the church how abundantly God provided in 2012. It was awesome. And I thought, man, that'd be so encouraging. And then right at the end, from 2012 to 2013, the giving dropped from one month to the next 50% in one month. Well, wow, that's weird. And it stayed like that into February. And it's kind of slowly inched back up a little bit, but you go, whoa, that's kind of strange. And then I had someone come and share with me a few months later and said, you know, I think when you shared how good the church was doing financially, that that had a, a, a wrong effect. So I don't know if that's true. But then the following week, someone came and shared with one of the other pastors here at the church, after I had shared about four months ago where we were financially, someone came to one of the pastors in the church and said, hey, at the end of the year, when you shared how good the church was doing I thought, well, they don't need my money. I'm going to give somewhere else. I thought, that's weird. I don't understand that, but it happened. 
And as it stands at this point, as we're finishing up the summer, we're 10% off of what our budget projections were for this year. And I've told you in the past, we're cutting costs to try and adjust for that. But the reality is, we need you to prayerfully consider giving. And as the year goes forward, we're going to probably take two or three opportunities for special offerings. There are times where we give our tithes every single week, but we're going to provide opportunities for some special offerings towards some things. Specifically, in October, we're going to receive a special offering for our harvest celebration. How many of you have been a part of it in the past? You see, normally we pay from that from our budget, but we don't have the budgeted monies to pay for it. So this October, we'll be receiving an offering for that above and beyond the, co- the candy offering, which I thank you for. My waistline doesn't, but I thank you for. So I just wanted to let you know before we move forward some of those things that are going to happen, and God has gifted us to give. And I will say, this church has always been a very giving church. It's always very evident that God is working in and through his church in that way. So I know there may be some people who feel a little offended that I talk about money today, and I'm sorry. If you're visiting our church, I don't talk about this very often. You can ask the person sitting next to you. Hopefully they won't tell you that I talk about it every week. I don't know. But, <laughs> but just so you know, we're a family. We're the body of Christ. I want to finish with this verse. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Turn there if you would. As you're turning there, I want to say two more things about gifts. How do I find out what gift I have, people often ask, or gifts? My first answer is that you step out by faith to serve God and see how he has enabled you to serve him. Step out by faith to do that thing that you may not feel like you want to do and see how he might enable you to serve him. Secondly, as I mentioned on our website, if you go to ccsco.com, on the main page there, watch the pictures on the front that change. There's one that comes up that says spiritual gifts test. It might be helpful. It's not definitive, but it might be helpful. You can take the test and see what kind of things it directs you in. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one, that's us, each one has received a what? Gift. Minister it to one another. That means don't hoard it, but minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How many of you today recognize that God's grace is great? As recipients of the manifold grace of God, having received not only salvation, but gifts for sanctification and service, having received those gifts, Peter says there that we should use those gifts and minister to one another. Therefore, we become good stewards, good servants, faithful stewards of the grace of God. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty certain every single one of you, like me, want to hear God one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the way that we're going to hear that is as we engage with the gifts that God has given to us to serve his kingdom. Every Christian is gifted by God, not just some spirit-filled Christians. Every Christian is gifted by God for service in his kingdom. And as we're going to see as we go through this next section of the book of Romans, to experience the abundant life is to use the gifts that God has given to us for his namesake. Amen?